So now that I've had some time to absorb your story from last week, yeah, which was about the disappearance of the Jameson family, yes, and the death. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! You should already have listened to it. Yes. Uh, still shocked at all the by the by. Still shocked at all the bizarre bizarreness. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. I'm going to put that on my my list of words I shouldn't say during the podcast. <laughs> Even if you ignore all the bizarre theories. Yeah. Well, first, we didn't really discuss Madison and the fact that she was only six years old mm-hmm. when all of this happened. You know, obviously, age doesn't matter. There was a child involved and was swept up in this whole situation, and they couldn't do anything about it. But my, my God, she was only six. Yeah. Amazing that the extended family didn't do more to protect her. Yeah, that was really odd to me, too, because especially the part where she was pulled out of school, they made a comment on that as if it was, like, not a big deal. Yeah, really bizarre. But going down the list of the facts. Yeah. Sherilyn was bipolar. Yes. At one point, she attempted suicide. Yes. There was a claim that there were dark spirits in their house. Madison had an imaginary friend. There was an exorcism, or at least I talked about one. I can't remember if they actually did it or not. I think it was more of wanting an exorcism done. Okay. But there were seances. Yes. Poison cats, the threat of witches. Like you said, they pulled Madison out of school. $32,000 in cash in their truck. A missing gun. An 11-page hate letter Sherilyn wrote about Bobby. Yes. The claim of an alleged cult hit list. (laughs) Yeah. Bobby had turned someone in for running a meth lab. Then there was the video, of course. Yes. And then we can't forget Bobby seeking out special ghost-killing bullets. Yeah. I don't know. That reminds me, I forgot to mention it in the last episode, because you had talked about it sounding like the plot of Amityville Horror, but the special bullets remind me of Supernatural with their assault bullets. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, as we we found from my story, though, salt doesn't work. That's true. Yeah, so maybe they have to be lead bullets. Lead? Yeah. What is it? Well, iron. No, iron. Oh, yeah, yeah. Iron bullets, not lead. Anyway, so anyway, yeah, I just, it just cannot wrap my head around how many bizarre things were going on. And it still that wasn't one story. solved. Right, yeah. Well, how could you possibly? That's true. Anyway, so what... Do you have tonight? I have another interesting, very sad story. I mean, they're all sad. Yes. But I do want to give a warning. It's a little deep considering it involves a child. Well, a teenager, but still. Still. So I just want to give that warning out. You're you're kind of stuck with listening. Oh, I was going to say, I'm I'm out of here. (laughs) (laughs) You're kind of stuck with listening, but anyone else who may have issues with that. Just a warning. Okay, warning received. So I'm going to be talking about the disturbing death of Sylvia Likens. 
Sylvia Marie Likens was born on January 3rd, 1949. She was the third child of Lester and Elizabeth Likens. She had four siblings, an older set of twins, Diana and Daniel, and a younger set of twins, Jenny and Benny. Two sets of twins. Yeah. Wow. That's... And imagine just being in the middle. Right. That sounds fun. <laughs> sounds lonely. Yeah, it sounds lonely too, but interesting. Yeah. Sylvia had long, wavy brown hair and a bright smile. She cared for her little sister, Jenny, who had a limp leg due to polio. She enjoyed spending her babysitting money on trips to the skating rink with Jenny. Sylvia fastened one skate to Jenny's sturdy foot and held her hand so she could skate with the other kids. That's a nice big sister. Yeah. In 1965, at the age of 16, Sylvia met Paula and Stephanie Banaszewski at Arsenal Technical High School. On June 3rd, 1965, Sylvia's mother was arrested for shoplifting. Lester sold concessions at carnivals and usually took the boys with him, but could not bring his daughters. Since the Likens and Banaszewski girls got along, Lester decided to send Sylvia and Jenny to live with Gertrude Banaszewski. He agreed to pay $20 each week for their board and care. Gertrude promised to care for the girls as if they were her own. That's a bizarre arrangement. Yeah, $20 doesn't seem like enough, but I guess in, you know, 1965? Yeah. Gertrude was born on September 19th, 1928. She married John Stefan Banaszewski at 16 years old. The couple had four children together. John became physically violent towards Gertrude, and she divorced him in 10 years. Weeks later, she married Edward Guthrie. He, too, turned out to be abusive, and they divorced within months. Gertrude remarried her first husband, had two more children, and divorced for the second time. I'm surprised that she remarried her first husband. Yeah. Next, Gertrude met 22-year-old Dennis Lee Wright, and the unwedded couple had one son together, Dennis Jr., in 1965. Dennis abandoned Gertrude and the baby. She filed a paternity suit against him, though she never saw a penny. So unfortunately, there goes another one. By 1965, Gertrude was a chain-smoking single mom of seven living in squalor in Indianapolis, Indiana for $55 a month. Gertrude's 13th pregnancy ended in her sixth miscarriage. Initially, the Banaszewski family treated Sylvia and Jenny kindly, as promised. The Likens and Banaszewski girls spent their time singing popular songs and gossiping about boys. The Banaszewski home was the kind that neighborhood children would come and go as they pleased. They were able to get away with things their parents wouldn't allow. Sylvia and Jenny shared a bedroom with 11-year-old Marie, 10-year-old Shirley, and 8-year-old Jimmy. The room only had one mattress on the floor that the five children took turns sleeping in. Lester Likens never stepped foot in the home before hiring her to care for his daughters. So they had one mattress and they took turns? Mm-hmm. And then they slept on the floor the rest of the time? I'm pretty sure, yes. Well, that's sad. Yeah, and her father never saw, like, the lack of beds beforehand, so he had no idea the condition of the home. Uh. Gertrude was struggling with money. Without the weekly $20, she would have had no way to feed all nine children and still pay rent. When future payments arrived late, or not at all, she became enraged. The Lycan sisters became the object of Gertrude's contempt. After the first late payment, she dragged Jenny up the stairs and whipped her with a leather belt. She said, quote, well, I took care of you bitches for a week for nothing, end quote. Wow, that's, that's sad. Yeah. The money then arrived in the mail the day after the first beating. 
Sylvia and Jenny's parents came a few days later and gave another advance payment. The sisters never said anything of the beating. That's odd that they wouldn't say anything. Probably out of fear. Yeah, yeah, I guess if they're stuck there. Yeah. When Gertrude learned that Sylvia was recycling pot bottles for cash, she started to hit her with a quarter-inch wooden paddle. She hit her repeatedly across the back and head. When Gertrude became weak due to chronic bronchitis, she handed the paddle to Paula. The abuse increased in frequency and severity. Gertrude may have felt sorry for Jenny due to her fragility because by August of 1965, Gertrude concentrated her outburst on Sylvia. Sylvia admitted she had a boyfriend in California. Gertrude was disgusted, and so was her daughter Paula, who repeatedly kicked Sylvia in the private area and accused her of being pregnant. Not only was she subjected to beatings, but Gertrude also started abusing Sylvia with food. Sylvia began to scavenge for food in dumpsters. When Gertrude caught Sylvia, she, Paula, and a neighbor child named Randy Lepper forced her to eat a hot dog loaded with tons of condiments and spices. When Sylvia threw up, they made her eat the vomit. Oh, man, that's just disgusting. Yeah, and the fact that a neighborhood kid got involved, too. Yeah, she just can't get a break anywhere. No. The girls returned to school in the fall, which pleased their father. Gertrude accused Sylvia of spreading rumors that Paula and Stephanie were prostitutes. Gertrude scolded the girls in front of her own children and their friends. Stephanie's 15-year-old boyfriend, Coy Hubbard, attacked Sylvia in response. Stephanie snickered as Gertrude taunted Sylvia by calling her filthy names. Gertrude accused Sylvia of stealing gym clothes. As punishment, she burnt her fingertips with a lit match while screaming that she hated Sylvia and how she was ruining her life. Somehow the subject turned to Sylvia's alleged promiscuity. Gertrude shrieked as she kicked Sylvia's pubic area repeatedly. Kicking Sylvia did not satisfy Gertrude. She made Sylvia strip naked and insert a glass cola bottle into a private area while her child accomplices watched and laughed. Oh, my God. Yeah. She is sadistic. Yeah. And children. Yeah. That one, well, all of it makes me... Stomach churning. Yeah. It's sad. Sylvia's parents checked on their daughters on October 5th. Again, they kept their secret, afraid of making it worse. Gertrude banned them from seeing their sister, Diana, who lived nearby. Gertrude alienated them from anyone who cared. Paula once held the door open and dared Sylvia to, quote, get out and stay away, end quote. But Sylvia had nowhere to go. Sylvia's last day of school was October 6th, the day after her parents' visit. Gertrude told the school Sylvia had no interest in going and pretended to be concerned. In reality, Gertrude banned Sylvia to the cold basement. Coy became one of Sylvia's primary attackers. He enjoyed body slamming Sylvia forcefully onto the concrete basement and tying her up for days at Gertrude's urging. Kids from the school visited the residence and participated in Sylvia's torture. Gertrude even coached them step by step. Wow, I thought it was so bizarre or sadistic that she had her kids doing it, but then getting the neighbor kids involved? And school kids. Yeah. Nothing was off-limits. If the children wanted to practice judo, Gertrude had them practice on Sylvia. Some kids put cigarettes out on Sylvia's skin to hear her cry. Gertrude would bathe Sylvia in hot water until her skin blistered. Sickening. Yeah, I don't... I don't even have words. Yeah, neither do I. Paula once beat Sylvia's face until she broke her wrist. 
Doctors put a cast on her arm while Paula bragged about exactly how she broke it. When she got home, she continued to hit Sylvia with her cast. Jesus. Gertrude used a needle to carve the letter I into the flesh of Sylvia's abdomen. Unable to finish the full statement, she encouraged her 15-year-old neighbor, Richard Hobbs, to complete the task. Quote, I'm a prostitute and proud of it, end quote, he etched on her belly. Just keeps getting more horrific. There's more, unfortunately. At Gertrude's request, Richard heated a metal hook and attempted to brand the letter S on Sylvia's chest, but instead branded her with the number three. Gertrude justified it by saying Sylvia branded her child and now she branded Sylvia. Coy returned and tied Sylvia up in the basement where he slammed her frail body onto the wall over and over. Gertrude finally broke Sylvia's spirit. She consoled her baby sister, quote, I know you don't want me to die, but I'm going to die. I can tell, end quote. Her voice was weak and trembling. The beatings made Sylvia lose control of her urination and bowel movements. Sylvia started to lose control of her limbs too. Gertrude knew Sylvia was taking a turn for the worse, so she permitted Sylvia to sleep on the mattress in the upstairs bedroom. After giving her a lukewarm bath, she condemned her back to the basement and forced her to write a letter that said, quote, to Mr. and Mrs. Likens. I went with a gang of boys in the middle of the night, and they said that they would pay me. I would give them something, so I got in the car, and they all got what they wanted. And when they finished, they beat me up and left sores on my face and all over my body. And they also put on my stomach, I am a prostitute and proud of it. I've done just about everything I could to just make Gertie mad and cause Gertie more money than she's got. I tore up a new mattress and peed on it. I have also cost Gertie doctor bills that she really can't pay and made Gertie a nervous wreck and all her kids. End quote. So she actually wrote that? She was forced to write it, yes. Which I think is weird that she's writing a letter to her parents and addressing them as Mr. and Mrs. Likens. Yeah. That night, Sylvia heard Gertrude and her children making plans to dump her in the woods. In a last-chance effort, Sylvia tried to run. Gertrude caught Sylvia, dragged her inside, and attempted to feed her toast. Sylvia didn't have the strength to eat. Gertrude struck her face with a curtain rod. Her son, John, returned her to the basement. John tied Sylvia's wrists to the basement railing. Her toes barely touched the ground. Gertrude shoved crackers into Sylvia's parched mouth. Sylvia told her she wasn't hungry and suggested she feed them to the dog. Gertrude then punched Sylvia in her belly. John force-fed her her own feces. I know there are a lot of sadistic people in the world, but it's just hard to stomach that people can treat another person like this. With no hesitation. Right. And just, it's, I mean, it's just flat out torture after torture after torture. Just sick, sick. On October 25th, Gertrude, Coy, and John beat Sylvia until she lost consciousness when Gertrude stomped on her head. When she came to, she gathered up enough strength to bang on the basement floor and walls, hoping someone would help her. But no one came. On the morning of October 26, 1965, Gertrude and Stephanie bathed Sylvia. During her bath, Sylvia stopped breathing. The Banaszewskis were terrified, not because they cared, but because they would be caught. Stephanie tried to revive her with CPR, but was unsuccessful. Gertrude placed Sylvia's broken body back on the mattress and instructed Richard to call the cops. Gertrude handed the police Sylvia's letter. She told them Sylvia ran away recently and had returned injured, clutching the note. Gertrude feigned grief and claimed that she was doctoring Sylvia. The officers rounded the hall corner to find Sylvia lying lifeless on the soiled mattress. 
Deputy Coroner Arthur Keeble noted that Sylvia's lips were practically chewed through. All 10 of her fingernails were bent backwards and broken. She had hundreds of wounds on her skin, all of them in different stages of healing, suggesting ongoing trauma. Dr. Charles Ellis performed the autopsy, and the cause of death was torture. Stomach churning. Yeah. So the police did ask Jenny what happened, and she repeated what Gertrude said, but added, quote, you get me out of here and I will tell you everything, end quote. So they did get the story out of Jenny eventually. That's good. So they got her out of that situation. Yes. Gertrude was convicted of first-degree murder. Paula was convicted of second-degree murder. They each received a life sentence, but after a second trial, Paula pled down to manslaughter and was released two years later. Gertrude was paroled in 1985. She claimed she had no memory of her actions. She died four years later of lung cancer. That just amazed me that she got out of jail. Yeah. Well, she was claiming she had no memory. So what? I don't know. I guess not only fleeing she, insanity. Not only did she kill the girl, yeah, but she tortured her for how long? That's sick to think that somebody can get out of jail. That easy? Yeah. Yeah. Paula moved to Iowa where she secured a new identity and a job at an elementary school. Stephanie married, had several children, and became a school teacher. Both people who should not be working in a school. Richard Hobbs, Coy Hubbard, and Gertrude's son, John, were convicted of manslaughter. They all received a 2- to 21-year prison term. They served two years, and Richard died of cancer at age 21. Jenny Likens married and had children of her own. She lived long enough to read Gertrude's obituary, which she mailed to her mother with a letter that read, quote, Some good news. Damon Gertrude died. Ha ha ha. I'm happy about that. End quote. The death of Sylvia Likens continues to haunt Indianapolis as the worst crime ever committed in the state. The house sat empty for decades before it was leveled. It is now a church parking lot. A memorial dedicated to Sylvia's memory stands in the Willard Park where Sylvia used to play. Can't say it enough that it is just stomach churning. Yeah, I again, it's one of those stories that like no words. You know, when you when you started, I was thinking that I'd heard the story before, but sadly, I'm thinking there's another story yeah. that's similar to this. That's what I thought when I was looking this up. I thought it was a different story, but after reading it, it sounded off than what I've heard before. Yeah. Remember story, I thought it was her daughter that she kept in a closet off of the kitchen. Yes, that's what I've heard before, okay, too. So that's sadly a totally different story. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, it has happened to more than one person. Yeah. But yeah, that was the very sad, disturbing death of Sylvia Likens. Wow, we just had some real downer stories these last couple of weeks. And um, I need to start adding some stupid criminal stories. Yes, need more stupid criminals. Yes, I'll get on that next time. Okay, good. So that's the end of my story. And if you didn't have any more comments, I would like to hear what your story is. Hopefully not as dark. Yes, no more comments. I just It's just sick, sick, sick. Yes. I guess my story is lighter than that, but it does have to do with curses. No. So it's not totally safe. Well, that's what we get for having a true crime paranormal podcast. Yes. <laughs> Nothing's safe here. <laughs> So, yeah, I just wanted to talk about some cursed items. 
First one I want to talk about was Pompeii. So for anybody who hasn't seen the recent Amazon commercial and are not familiar with Pompeii, a huge volcanic eruption from Mount Vesuvius in August of 79 CE overwhelmed the residents of Pompeii with a cloud of ash, pumice, and hot gases. Yeah. Crushing and asphyxiating everything, everyone in its path. Oh, wow. When the site was excavated sometime in the 1700s, they found the remains of the residents perfectly preserved, showing them their pets and their belongings just as they were at the time of the disaster. And since then, it has become a huge tourist attraction. And people go there? Yeah, to see. That's so odd to me. I feel like that's like a really eerie thing to do. Eerier than going to the Lizzie Borden house? Okay, you may have a point, <laughs> but at least they're not like actual people there. Like the people that died aren't there. Yeah, well, they're stone now. I mean, they're not. That was a long time ago. Would you go to visit? I don't know. It, it, it's not something that I've ever had an interest in going to see, but I, I can see the attraction for people. Yeah, I guess out of curiosity, I'd want to see it, but I feel like it would just be eerie. I guess if you're going and paying respect yeah. for what they went through. Yeah. But it is, from what I've seen, pictures I've seen, it is very sad. Yeah, it, it sounds it. I don't know if I want to see pictures. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't bring up any pictures or anything, okay. but you can look. So 15 years after stealing a couple of mosaic tiles along with three other artifacts... A Canadian woman sent them to a travel agent in Pompeii along with a letter explaining why she wanted to return them to the site. She explained that she had suffered many misfortunes over the years since taking the items, including financial hardship and getting breast cancer twice. Wow. She had taken the artifacts because she wanted something historically unique that nobody else had, but she said they were full of negative energy from the disaster and was hoping returning them would break the cycle, and she did not want to pass the curse on to her family. Oh, wow. Another family, also from Canada, returned some stones they took in 2005. So Canadians are known for being super polite, That's but a, apparently they have sticky fingers. That's what I was going <laughs> to say. It's all that maple syrup that they have yeah. over there. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that they were supposed to be nice. (laughs) Apparently not honest. In their letter, they said they took the stones without consideration of the terrible deaths from the eruption and asked for forgiveness for making a bad choice of stealing. Who is supposed to forgive them to take back the curse? The gods? Hmm. I don't know. Another woman returned 10 mosaic tiles her parents had taken while visiting in the 70s. She inherited them when her mother passed and felt uncomfortable about having them. So so she just wanted to return them because she felt bad that her parents had taken them. That's good. Yeah. I'm glad that, that didn't get passed down to her. Yeah. One letter from Spain said they took the pieces being returned during a visit in 1982, and they had bad luck over the years. They didn't know if it was a curse or just coincidence, but wanted to return them just in case. I feel like there's not a coincidence with that. Yeah. Another letter from Spain in 2010 said, quote, Good day. Sounds Australian. Let me try that again. Good day. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Good day. I am convinced that these pebbles that I brought from Italy bring me bad luck. Remember, I'm quoting here, so. Yeah. <laughs> and this is a translation from Spanish. Ah. Yeah. Uh. For this reason, I am sending them home so that I can be free. Thanks and have a good day. End quote. Some people have returned items because they heard about the curse and wanted to send them back as a precaution. How many people took things? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So this, I think this is good for the, a good promotional thing for the site. Yeah. To scare people into not taking things. Because, yeah, you would think at some point there wouldn't be anything left. Yeah. Because there's so many people stealing stuff. Do people not have a conscience? I feel like I would feel guilty. I feel guilty if I take, like, I don't know. I couldn't. Uh, yeah, I couldn't take something. That would be. Even if it's, it's free, I feel guilty taking it. But it's amazing, yeah, how many people. That's crazy. What would they even do? I don't, I don't know. So many questions. A spokesperson for the park said, this is how dedicated I am to this story. Yes. My Italian's a bit rusty, but I phoned Italy to speak to somebody. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, not really. I read that a spokesperson for the park said around 200 visitors have returned artifacts over the past decade. Oh, my gosh. Along with letters saying the items had brought them bad luck. The returned artifacts and letters are on display at the site. They say although it is great people are returning the items, their significance is lost because there is no way of knowing where at the site the items came from. That's what I was thinking about too. Yeah. It's like a shame that it's not going back to the original place. Yeah, so they pretty much ruined the items. Yeah. This is similar to uh, Pele's curse. When you take things native to Hawaii, Yeah. supposedly it brings you bad luck. Is that why we had to sign a, a waiver when we landed yeah. in Hawaii? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we can't take anything. <laughs> my next story is the Thomas Busby chair. Wait, before I go on to your next story, I was going to ask this, but I didn't want to ask if... Oh, sure. In case you said it. But did returning the items actually help the people? You know, I don't recall in this reading about, you know, they... They got the letters from these people, but not actually talking to anybody who returned the items. Yeah. You know, I don't know if anybody ever tracked down these people to see if it actually helped or not. Hmm. So, yeah, good question. But I don't know. I would be curious to know. Yeah. But I'm not going to test that theory out. No. Which is interesting. My, my thoughts on this next story, the Thomas Busby chair. I think yeah. you're familiar with this one. I think you told me about this. Oh, I think I know where you're going. So the Thomas Busby chair currently resides at the Thirsk Museum in the UK and hangs there on a wall 1.5 meters off the floor. Yes, I remember saying this because now we don't want to bump into chairs. Well, see, that's interesting. I thought the story was just touching the chair. So I don't know if it's a different chair, but this is sitting in the chair. Oh. Yeah. So maybe there's multiple cursed chairs. Yeah, maybe. That's interesting. There are a lot of different stories about how Thomas Busby cursed the chair. But of course, just because an origin story gets mixed up over the years doesn't mean that the curse isn't real. Yeah. Right? I feel like origin stories are like stuff like that that aren't recorded. It's like playing the game telephone over the yeah, years. Yeah, exactly. I was just, th I was just thinking <laughs> that. <laughs> that and then people want to add, you know, creepier stuff to make it sound scary. And then that gets added to the whole thing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But 
1702, Busby was tried and condemned to death for the murder of his father-in-law, Daniel Audie. So I don't think there's any disagreement about that occurring. Yeah. One story goes that for his last meal, he requested to eat in his favorite pub, sitting in his favorite chair, the pub which was right across the street from where he would be hung. That's weird. Yeah. After he finished eating, he stood up and said, quote, may sudden, well, I'm not going to quote this because it's been so long. I don't know if this is his actual words. Okay. (laughs) May sudden death come to anyone who dares to sit in my chair. Another story is that a person cursed will be met by an accident, commit suicide, or die of a dangerous disease. Wow. That seems oddly specific. Yeah. (laughs) Aren't all diseases that kill you dangerous? (laughs) (laughs) That's what I was thinking. (laughs) Don't make fun of his wording because... No, no, yeah. You're right. Dangerous disease. Well, that wasn't his wording. That Well, it could have been. Yes, you're right. It could have been his wording, so I'm not making fun of it. No. My apologies. The pub donated the chair to the museum in 1978. I believe the pub had the chair stored away most of the time, so it wasn't out you know, over that 276 years where people could sit on it. Yeah. Because there would be a lot of victims if that was the case. Yeah. Supposedly, allegedly, 63 people who dared to sit in the chair met untimely or terrifying deaths. There were a few vague accounts of some incidents, but I didn't see anything describing that many people who died from the curse. That's weird. What fascinates me about, I think, any of these curses, but I don't know, with this one, especially when we were talking about the touching, because we've had this discussion before about, you know, would we touch the chair or would you sit in this chair? Because we could say, kind of like with superstitions, we could say, well, we don't believe in it, but just in case. Yeah, just in case. As precaution. Yeah, I'm not tempting fate. See, that's the problem, because part of me is, like, I'm tempted because everyone else is afraid of it, and I want to, like, prove something. I don't want to prove anything. (laughs) I believe it. I'm not going anywhere near the chair. I don't even want to go look at it. How about if you're really old and you know that your time is soon, would you then sit in the chair? Oh, assisted suicide? What? <laughs> what? You're talking about killing yourself, right? You're really old. You want to die. Well, because then at least you're not dying super young. Oh. If you're already going to be dying. Oh, you're, you're saying I'm, I'm old, so life doesn't matter anymore. I'll go ahead and do it to see what happens. Yeah. I thought you were talking about I'm old and I just want to die. What? <laughs> so I'll sit in the chair and get it over with. No. <laughs> I gotcha. No. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Maybe. I'm almost there, so. No. (laughs) No. Ask me again in a few more years. I will not. Let you know if I'm ready to sit in the chair. (laughs) Oh, no. Okay. So, my next story. This one, I'm not taking any chances. So, my opening statement. (laughs) Okay. Robert. Hello. My name is Bill. I am asking you for permission to tell your story. Unless you give me a sign. (laughs) Sorry. Dramatic pause. I'm assuming you are giving me your approval. I mean no disrespect with what I discuss. I'm only presenting the facts as I know them. All right? Okay. All right. So Robert the Doll currently resides at the Fort East Martello Museum in Key West. He is a -a one-of-a-kind, handmade doll created around the early 1900s. He stands 40 inches tall and is stuffed with wood wool. He is dressed in a sailor suit, 
complete with hat, and is holding his own toy dog. This is another one where the origin stories are kind of shaky. Yes. You know, some seem like they could be embellishments to scare up the story a bit, but the following seems like the most plausible. Yes. It is believed that he was made by the Steiff Company in Germany, the same toy maker that made the first teddy bear in honor of Teddy Roosevelt. Oh. Did you know that the teddy bear was yes. in honor of Teddy Roosevelt? Okay. <laughs> I did. Okay. And the doll was never intended to be for sale, but was part of a set made for a window display of clowns and jesters. That's weird. If he's in a sailor outfit. Well, no, he didn't have the sailor outfit at that point. Oh, okay. So I'll, I'll get to that. Robert Eugene Otto's grandfather bought the doll during a trip to Germany and gave the doll to the child as a birthday gift. Robert Eugene went by Gene, but the doll was given his name Robert. It is believed that the sailor suit also did not come with Robert, but was more likely an outfit Gene wore as a child. Hmm. One story I had read that it wasn't actually a, an outfit that he wore, but it was designed after one of his outfits. Yeah, that makes sense. Gene took the doll everywhere and spoke about Robert in the first person. One story made this seem kind of odd behavior, but it seems typical kid stuff, right? Well, yeah. You know, the, the doll's real to you. That's true. Yeah. However, they were inseparable, and it is said that the relationship continued into adulthood. Whenever there were mishaps, Jean began blaming the doll. One of the only real noted incidents I read about was when Jean woke up in the middle of the night with Robert sitting at the end of his bed, staring at him. Moments later, the rest of the house was woken by the sound of furniture being thrown around the room. Oh. When his mother entered, she found everything in chaos and the young boy curled up in fear on the bed. When Jean was older, Robert took a position propped up in the upstairs window of the family home. School children who walked by the house became aware of the legend and said the doll would appear and disappear in the window. Now, I kind of want to comment on it, how easy it would be for somebody to play a prank on the kids as they're walking by. Yeah. But I don't want to doubt that it was Robert being mischievous. So, yeah, I'll leave that alone. I want to know if he did it while they were watching. Like he just got up and. Yeah, that really wasn't clear. Like, yeah, yeah if he moved when they were watching him. Yeah. It made it sound like, you know, they'd look and he was there and then they look again and he was gone. Yeah. As an adult, Gene was an artist and was considered an eccentric. He married Annette Parker in 1930. She went by Anne, I guess. Was not happy with Robert, and he was moved to the attic. Uh oh. It is reported that Anne would hear footsteps and malicious giggling from the attic. What is malicious giggling? I was wondering the same thing. How do you giggle maliciously? That sounds like an oxymoron. Yes. That's odd, but that's that's what it said. Yeah. Anne left Key West in 1974 after Eugene died and left Robert behind. Side note, she passed away two years later. Oh. The house, doll included, was sold to Myrtle Ruder, and she lived in the house for 20 years. Apparently, Robert remained in the attic. What? This is starting to sound like the plot of the movie with the uh, homemade movies. Oh, Sinister. Sinister, yes. The next owners had a daughter who discovered the doll, 
At first, she was delighted, but she would repeatedly wake up screaming at night, convinced Robert wanted to hurt her. She also told her parents Robert was wandering around her room at night. Ew. Yeah. I mean, not you. I don't want to get cursed. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That just sounds creepy. The doll was donated to the museum in 1994. The museum encourages visitors to ask Robert's permission before taking photographs. Supposedly, those unwilling to do so are met with horrible misfortune. No, sorry. Those unwilling to do so are met with horrible misfortune. There's no supposedly about it. Yeah. Yes. It is reported that respecting him has caused car accidents, broken bones, job loss, divorce, and other various misfortunes. I think you said respecting him. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) No, no. Okay. No. Wait, 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 wait. Okay. Okay. It is reported that disrespecting him has caused car accidents, broken bones, (laughs) (laughs) job loss, divorce, hemorrhoids, diarrhea, (laughs) 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 migraines, and other misfortunes. (laughs) No, we're going to get cursed. (laughs) No, okay. Okay, no, seriously. Car accidents, broken bones, job loss, divorce, and other various misfortunes. Touch my crystal here because (laughs) (laughs) I'm screwed. (laughs) I don't have any near me. (laughs) Okay, so the rules are, must greet and introduce yourself to Robert. Yes. Must ask permission to take a photo. How do you know if he gives you permission? I assume his silence. That's why I said at the beginning, you know, give me a sign and I'll stop. If not, I'm going to assume you're okay with it. Yeah. And you must say goodbye. These are like the rules of the Ouija board. That's what I was thinking. (laughs) So Robert gets one to three letters a day, mostly apologies from people who failed to respect him or openly disrespected him. Others ask him for advice or to hex someone who has wronged them. (laughs) 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 You have to really go out of your way to write a letter to Robert. Well, first I want to know what advice are they asking for? And then I really like this guy and I want you to know, I want to know what to do. And then asking him to hex somebody for them. My question is, are any of these letters, apologies letters, written while they're on the toilet? (laughs) (laughs) What? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, gone. we're cursed. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I read he has received well over a thousand letters. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. At some point, it became known that Robert had a sweet tooth. And people often leave or send him candy. Those who photograph Robert frequently report glitches in their camera that clear up after they leave the museum. Is that with or without permission? I didn't say, but I think it's just in general. Oh. Now, the best article I read, the author was Murphy. Hope I get her name right. If not, totally apologize. Murphy Marani. That sounds good. Okay, we'll go with that. Back in 2019. She wrote about how her and her husband followed all of the rules during their visit and thought they were safe. But she made a comment about a grown man carrying around a doll. 
The next day, their flight home was delayed. They were forced to rebook because the plane was too heavy, and they ended up with a five-hour layover waiting for a connecting flight. When they finally got home around midnight, they discovered the airline lost their luggage. It was at that point that they decided to write Robert to apologize. So they wrote the apology letter, sent them. I I guess he gets email too. Email? (laughs) (laughs) So he has his own computer now? Yeah. The day after sending the apologies, they called the airline and discovered their bags were found in Key West with a different airline than they had flown. But it appeared that their luck was changing, so... I feel like that's not that odd of an uh, odd of a thing to happen. I think it was a curse. I whatever you want to think. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> it's just I don't know. Because if that's the worst that happened, yeah. So what happens if you write the letter and it takes a long time to get to Robert? <laughs> Your mail so gets just, lost and never he never receives it. Oh my gosh, you'd be cursed forever. Oh yeah, I, I guess email would be smarter because if he mailed it, you'd have to wait for it to get there. Yeah. Unless Robert just knows. Could be. That'd be nice. Kind of like Santa Claus. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like Robert, the opposite of Santa Claus. The (laughs) anti-Claus? Yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) We're going to have to cleanse. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) After. (laughs) If we make it that long. Oh, no. (laughs) That was it. So one last note on that one. Thank you, Robert. No disrespect. And goodbye. I didn't to greet Robert, not to the audience. I didn't greet Robert. You didn't warn me to greet Robert and well, say goodbye. I was telling the story. What about those who hear it? Well, I don't think me telling the story is going to curse you. After the comments I made, it probably will. Is or is that like the watching the videotape? But you have to watch the videotape to. And if you listen to this story, <laughs> you're going to be cursed. Okay, <laughs> Robert, I am very sorry. If I had disrespected you in any way, shape, or form. Say goodbye. Goodbye, Robert. Okay, so as long as he believes that we meant that, we should be good. But we'll cleanse just in case. Yes. He can't curse us to (laughs) lose our audience. (laughs) (laughs) He could curse us to never gain an audience. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Don't give him ideas. Yeah, really. Sorry, Robert. Just kidding. Oh my god. That is all I had. Anything else? Stupid criminals? I don't have that this <laughs> no, week. No, okay. All right. So thank you very much for joining us. Make sure to visit next week if we're still here for more weird and creepy stories. <laughs> <laughs> don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 12past3 or email us at podcast at 12past3.com. Good night. Good night. <laughs>